0: We believe that God wants to call elders who have a desire and a heart for the work of, of an elder and not, not just a title. The church leadership role is called uh, three different terms. First of all, overseer slash bishop. We talked about the meaning of uh, bishop. Um, another title would be pastor. And then also synonymous would be the title that we use frequently here, which is elder. I heard um, that there were good questions and good discussion in the community groups, and I appreciate that greatly. And I think that, that hopefully that will continue this week. Um, we talked about that, the preaching team talked about that this week, that there's a lot of discussion, a lot of very good questions, and um, although we are trying to cover as much as we can during these messages, we believe it would be helpful to have a question and answer time at the end of the series. So next week, uh, Chad is going to bring a message on deacons, and then Josh will close the series the following week, uh, speaking of membership and um, some of the uh, responsibilities of of membership. And uh, after that, either that Sunday or the one following, so sometime at the end of March, we'll have a member meeting um, to do a question and answer time. What would be helpful is if even now, as, as we are preaching these messages, if you have questions that are not answered in the message, um, jot them down, email them to us. Maybe we can be more organized in how we respond and so that we do. Uh, it's probably a question that someone else in the church body has. So please feel free to send those to Josh and I. Uh, write those down so that we will uh, have a chance for the whole church body to gather together at the end of this series. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read two main passages to start with, then we'll pray, and then we'll uh, see what the text has for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, and starting in verse number 1. This is the Apostle Peter speaking. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then turn back, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And now we will see the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders from the church of Ephesus at the end of his ministry. We touched on this passage last week and we'll look at it in more depth this week. Acts chapter 20 and verse number 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. and now I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that this week you would um, give us continued illumination by your spirit, that we would uh, seek out the truth in your word as applicable to this uh, idea of elders and leaders within the church. We pray that you would give us teachable spirits. We pray that you would give us sensitive consciences so that if there is uh, something that we are practicing that is not biblical, that we would be willing to change. We pray that you would give us a genuine belief that you can change us and you will change us to be more like your son as we minister together here within the body of Christ as evidenced by this local manifestation of the church. We pray that um, although some of the things leading up to the service have been unusual this week with the uh, passing of our brother Doug, with some sickness, with just some uh, uh, perhaps things that didn't go according to plan, that we would put those out of our minds and that um, we would um, rest in your sovereignty, that we would um, be blessed by how you love us and how you demonstrate that love through the church. We just pray that this would be a time that would be edifying to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we talked about the qualifications of an elder, and this week we want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what is the role of an elder? What do elders do? It's useful to consider that elder responsibilities can be classified as macro responsibilities and micro responsibilities. Now, I borrow these terms from a book called The Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. Macro responsibilities are those that are exercised on behalf of the entire body. These are uh, responsibilities, overall leadership, oversight, shepherding of the body as a whole. Now, micro-responsibilities would be more on a person-to-person basis. And we can see this demonstrated in this chapter, um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, a little bit farther back from where we started. If you look back at verse number 17, when Paul says, now from Miletus, uh, or it's describing Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. In verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And then this verse, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So Paul ministered both in public and in private to this church. And with that in mind, let me just say the first role of an elder is that he must shepherd. The first role of an elder is that he must shepherd both on a macro scale and overall scale and on a micro scale. If we if we look at first chapter five. Now, I think we'll be jumping between these two passages. So if you can keep a finger in each one, it'll be helpful. This passage in chapter five of first Peter clearly lays out the responsibility of an elder to shepherd the flock. Now, this is not unusual speech in the New Testament. The church is often referred to as a flock. The church. Our sheep, the chief shepherd is Christ, and he has entrusted the church to be uh, the care of his flock to under shepherds who are elders and pastors. There is much to be gleaned from this title of shepherd. The reason um, the job title, the the role of a shepherd, it, it just implies a great deal that is helpful to elders. It's important, first of all, for elders to know their flock. Now, I know there's an outline on the bulletin. So my points under elder shepherd are that elders must know, elders must feed, elders must uh, protect, and elders must lead. I know it's it's always uh, when there's space and you start, you don't know how many points the guy's going to do. You don't know how much space to leave, but there's going to be four points under elder shepherd. First of all, elders uh, that are shepherds must know their flock. The elders have a responsibility, first of all, to know who is in the flock, who is in the flock. Elders must discern as carefully as possible that those who are admitted to membership within the church are, in fact, true believers. They are to help maximize, again, as much as can be humanly known, because only God knows the heart. But they are elders are to help maximize the correlation between the visible church, the manifestation of as we gather here between the visible church and the invisible church, the body of Christ. The ordinances that we practice here are for believers. We believe that baptism and the receiving of the Lord's Supper are for believers. And these are signs of grace under the new covenant in Christ. Being admitted to these ordinances by elders is testimony that the person partaking in that baptism or in that Lord's table, as we will do today, That person is part of the flock, of the body of Christ. Elders need to know as much as is possible whether a person is a member of the flock at a macro level through identification by membership through that person's profession of faith. So membership, we believe, is a legitimate expectation for New Testament believers. Um, You can turn there if, if you wish, but this may be a familiar verse. In Hebrews 13, there's a clear statement that elders will give an account for the flock that is entrusted to their care in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, speaking to the church, um, the, the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, 17. So in today's language, elders will answer for the people under their care. This is truly one of the most sobering aspects of eldering and shepherding, that an elder must give an account to God for the people under his care. Elders not only should know who is in the flock, elders should know the flock on a micro-personal level. Now we'll see as we go through these roles of feeding, protecting, and leading, that actually to know the people at a, on a person-to-person basis the, those that you are leading, that you are shepherding, it will only help in the process of sanctification, of encouragement, of edification. Sometimes when you need to rebuke, to be able to rebuke someone that you love is much more meaningful than someone that you do not know. So, first, shepherds know the flock. Secondly, and we'll dwell on this for a while, shepherds feed the flock. Shepherds feed the flock. So in John 21, we have that story on the, of Jesus and his disciples on the shores of Galilee after the fishing and the uh, morning breakfast. Jesus asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter uh, replies, yes, I love you. And Jesus tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges Timothy with his past- in his pastoral ministry to preach the word, reprove, rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching. In our passage in Acts 20, we see that Paul reminded the elders from Ephesus that they that, that he had demonstrated to them the most important role of teaching sound doctrine and declaring the whole counsel of God. Even last week, if you remember, in Timothy and in Titus, we studied that the unique qualification of an elder, above all, that he has to be a, a man who is able to teach, he must as Titus 1, 9 says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This, I believe, is the emphasis for elders who shepherd, not the practical gifts of administration or other more earthly skills. But if anything, the management stuff can be undertaken with the help of others, other elders, or perhaps those who are not elders, the deacons. The required role that Scripture calls for is that the elder must be able to shepherd by feeding, and that feeding is in the form of sound teaching. We expanded this last week by concluding that teaching, as described here, being able to teach, takes on the form of discipleship, whether that's public proclamation of the word or in a, a group of people or on an individual basis. The discipleship feeding is accomplished in part with the public proclamation of God's word. One question came up this week. A person asked, does an elder have a greater role in discipleship within the flock? Doesn't elder have a greater role or responsibility to disciple within the flock? I would answer there is not a greater responsibility for God calls all believers to make disciples. But there is a greater accountability there, every believer has the same responsibility to teach all nations, to make disciples. There's not an out for any believer. But Hebrews 13, as we just looked at, does point to an accountability that is higher for elders. The elders should feed the sheep with care. Remember that word um, bosco, which was kind of like the prodigal son feeding the pigs. So I, It's not by feeding, by dumping a bucket on, on the head of the sheep. This is feeding or teaching with love. And again, this is where micro-knowing the sheep, to actually know the person, is extremely valuable and and much more effective to feed with care and to feed with love like a shepherd. The eldest should also be careful to feed with accuracy and not just of his own opinions. Our church is committed and we try to practice expository preaching, which generally means that we would systematically work our way through the scripture, through a book in the Bible, and declare to the church body what the point is of the passage, and we draw applications from that passage. Now, only by this can we truly preach with boldness that comes from God, for we speak with the authority of God's word and not just our own intellect, feeble intellect, or or what we might consider well-reasoned arguments. We should not depend on our own opinions and our own crafty words to try to persuade the listener to Christ. Now, this message, even though it is topical, I'm trying to, to understand the point of the passages that speak to elders and not to stretch too far what Scripture says. So even a topical message can remain scripturally accurate as long as the intent and message of the divinely inspired author remains intact. So an elder must feed with care. An elder must feed with accuracy and not from his own opinions. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a passage that we want to consider. When we consider this role as a feeding shepherd, that shepherds are to feed by teaching, I want to take a moment to uh, discuss whether it's biblical. Is it biblical to designate one elder as the teaching elder? For if all elders are to be able to teach as 1st Timothy says, what does it mean to be a teaching elder if that's required of all elders? So, in 1st Timothy chapter 5, go ahead and turn over there. 1st Timothy 5 and verse 17. 1st Timothy 5 and uh, verse 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages so verse 17 establishes the point of overseeing with authority especially in the area of preaching and teaching these verses quote luke 10:7 and the, the, the verse there talking about the laborer deserves its wages. It brings a focus on payment for labor. So what does double honor mean? What is Paul saying when he talks about the the, the the elders who rule well should be considered for double honor? Is he saying double salary? As part of this picture, we can also see what else Paul said about payment for those who preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, and we're not going to go there, but do jot that down. It's an interesting passage where Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about the appropriateness of a minister of the gospel receiving recompense or payment for preaching the gospel. What's interesting, Paul also lets them know in that passage that he passes that up. He, he, uh, he does not take payment for his ministry, even though he considers it to be acceptable. So in light of that, it's difficult to imagine that Paul is saying that an elder who teaches well should be worthy of double salary because even setting the um, what the single salary would be would be uh, perhaps difficult since Scripture doesn't exactly say um, something like the, the the elder should be paid the same as the most highly paid person in your church. So this this concept of double honor, I'd ask you to consider that that would be, both the respect due an elder and also the salary. That there is room, there is an appropriate, um, nature of an elder who devotes himself to study, who devotes himself to preaching and teaching, that that person can be paid. But I would say this is not a required position. A New Testament church can exist, as we do, even without a, a person who is a teaching, who, who is being paid to do teaching. Adding a staff elder, if God so leads this body, should not necessarily change how we in the body all minister and interact at Grace and Truth. We would still seek to see all elders have a teaching, discipling role. And if God so gifts, all elders would participate in public preaching on a regular basis. And there are some advantages to that that I'll I'll mention later. My prayer is that we would not fall back into a culture where we, we depend on the staff or the clergy to handle things. I've been encouraged, and I mentioned this to our community group this week, that um, during this time, with as needs have come up and we don't have someone on staff, I don't know if it's just the fact that we don't have a staff person or if it's the fact that God is working in hearts and, and binding hearts together within the body, but there are people ministering to each other on a counseling basis, on a regular uh, counseling basis, people reaching out in compassion, people that are um, even even with the Blairs, for example. Um, because both Josh and I work another job, uh, we we are not able to visit as much as someone who um, perhaps would be on staff and, and, and devote himself only to church business. So um, it was very encouraging to me that uh, others within the body checked up on the Blairs regularly and we'll continue to do so, no doubt. That they would send us reports so that we could pray with more um, knowledge. Uh, That was encouraging not to say, well, I'm going to call the elders and have them go visit. I'm going to call the elders and have them go take a meal. It's it's just this culture that we are building now, I believe, is God-directed. I hope that we won't depend on staff people to do the shepherding and the caring, the contact, the encouragement even the rebuking and the mutual edification. I hope that God continues to build habits within our lives as a church that would help us to stay away from an unbiblical model of depending on only the staff person to do certain things. So shepherds feed. Shepherds know the flock. Shepherds also protect the flock. And coming from these passages in Acts 20 and Hebrews 13, these verses speak on, on uh, being on guard, Uh, Elders are keeping watch. And a shepherd protects his flock. This includes the seeking of lost straying sheep, as well as responsibility for those that are in the flock. Uh, The lost straying sheep, I think, would speak to the elder's responsibility to protect by bringing God's lost sheep, those who are not part of the flock, into the fold. The, The shepherd has a responsibility. The elder has a responsibility to evangelize and bring those those sheep in the fold. But the shepherd also admonishes improper behavior and attitudes within the flock. If we recall that word overseer, you know, bishop, overseer, to care after, to look over, it, it, it fits this protection role of an elder. The shepherd's constantly monitoring his flock and, and knows them well enough to notice when people, when sheep begin to stray. The church is to esteem their elders in love, because of their work and admonition. Now, I looked up the word admonish; it's to, it means to rebuke, but in a well-meaning way, with the heart of of wanting the best for the other person. First Thessalonians chapter five, jot this down. Um, First Thessalonians chapter five, twelve and thirteen, Paul says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord." And admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So protection can take on the form of bringing in lost sheep. Protection can take on the form of admonishing the sheep of improper behavior and attitudes. Protection may also take on the form of confronting error, as we have read frequently in Titus 1 9, that false doctrine must be confronted by the elders. False doctrine may take on many forms. We might be wise enough to recognize that a person who just comes out and says, Jesus is not the Son of God, we would recognize that as false doctrine. But what if a person said, how can a God who loves the whole world, John 3.16, decide that there are people in this world who must go to hell? How can a God who sent his Son to pay the penalty for sin decide to punish people for that sin? No, I say God will win, love will win, and hell will not be full of people. I take that from events that are happening in the world this week. There's a new book coming out that has some concerning words in this area. But you see how truth, twisted, can seem plausible. And we see that even back in the Garden of Eden. Satan, in the form of the serpent, did not say, God, bye to you. He asked some questions that that were, were of partial truth. Our world is full of partial truth, pop psychology that has names for sin that are actually just self-justifying excuses. We can be easily captured by man-centered views of the world. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's a, one of the books is The Silver Chair. Um, how many people are familiar with that? It's not been a movie yet, so hopefully it's coming. There's a scene where the children in this book and their companion, Puddleglum the Marshwiggle have just re- freed the captive prince from the silver chair that kept him under enchantment. That enchantment denied him the ability to know who he really was. The queen came into the room just after the prince was freed. The evil queen who had enchanted him for 10 years came into the room and confronted the prince and his rescue party. Now she began to speak to them very calmly. She uh, played some music. She threw some incense into the fire. And slowly she began to question their story, their origins. She questioned their belief in Aslan, the great lion. She questioned even the fact that there was a sun in their world. She gently ridicules their insistence that these things exist. And she chides them for their childish stories. So the scene ends in that room with the evil queen saying, Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have worked for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia. There's no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now, to bed all, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first, to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them, the enchantment almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would hurt a human, for his feet were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. What Puddleglum did was to declare the truth to the others in his rescue party by his actions, by confronting the false doctrine being taught to them. And his words in in the ensuing narrative, despite the personal pain to himself, he did what needed to be done to make sure that evil did not overcome the truth. The seductive words of false doctrine can be appealing, and the elders must protect by confronting error, regardless of personal pain that may cause it may cause the elders. This is part of discipling. This is part of keeping the flock from straying, from their commitment to follow Christ and be a part of his church. An elder must know, must watch, correct, and fight back evildoers and false doctrine. This is the elders' role of protection. Elders as shepherds also lead the flock. Shepherds lead the flock. And in this discussion, I want to focus a little bit on micro-leading. It's easy enough to think of macro-leadership, to see that elders make decisions about the budget, elders make decisions about the church building or what time we meet, decisions that concern the whole congregation. Although that is a part of leadership. I believe that the verses that this talk about elders leading talk about leading by example. It's a more personal uh, leadership. In 1 Peter 5, 3, the verse says being examples to the flock. In Hebrews 13, if you look farther back in the chapter in verse number seven, it talks. Uh, let me read that. 13:7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Elders are to demonstrate leadership by example in multiple areas. Uh, first of all, to lead by example in their personal relationship to Christ, and their personal walk with Christ. Consider the faith of the elders that are over you and, and imitate that faith. They are also to lead by example in shepherding their families. We saw that very sobering qualification requirement for an elder that he manage his household well and have faithful children. Elders are also to lead by example in ministry to others within the church and outside the church through evangelism. Now, what leadership is not is also addressed in scripture. Leadership is not, as first peter five three says, not lording over those allotted to your charge. Leadership is not leading with no care for those who follow. Leadership is not leading while wishing an elder had different sheep. Leadership is not leading for your own agenda, as 1 Peter 5 says, or your own gain. Elders are to lead as ones who are motivated by love for the Lord. Elders are to lead as ones who are motivated by a love for the sheep and for their well-being. Sometimes people talk about elders having a vision for the church. Vision for the church—is it required? Um, we talk about elders needing a, a vision, a five-year vision, like in five years this church will be here and have so many people and have these ministries. Now, frequently it's a measurement of nickels and noses, money and um, head count—you know, how many people we have in the church. This sometimes stems from a misuse of the verse in Proverbs twenty nine, eighteen in the King James it says, Where there is no vision the people perish. Um Vision actually in that verse means the word of God. Uh the ESV says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off for strength, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So so that verse is, is not should not be taken as um The motivational verse for a building program, you know, where you have you're raising money and you say where there's no vision, the people perish. That that verse speaks of something else where there is no prophetic um, vision, where there is no word of God. The people have no restraints. Elders should have a vision for the direction of the church. But I would submit for your consideration. Perhaps it's not to be different from the other biblical church down the road. Perhaps the vision is sufficient enough to be that elders are to feed the flock, to disciple the flock. And as disciples are being developed within the church body, those disciples will seek to follow God's instructions by evangelizing the lost as transformed recipients of the gospel. I do not believe we're supposed to create niche churches. Like we're going to be a church that ministers to engineers. Everybody run. Uh, We're not uh, to minister only to skateboarders. We are to be a church that's guided by God through his word and not only through the burden of the elders, but as we've said before, the burden of those within the flock. God may bring a person into this body who has a burden for a certain ministry, a, a heart for counseling, for example, And and the elders may see that this is a person who's gifted in that area. And simultaneously, God may bring people who have a need for counseling into the church. And by so doing, that becomes the burden or the passion, I would say, of the church. I feel like the word vision can be overused. And it can be said, in five years, we are going to be 250 people and we're going to have our own place. If God leads that way, that is fine. But I think the vision of the church is to to make disciples. An elder shouldn't for force, for example, an urban city church to have a very robust nursing home ministry if there are no nursing homes in the downtown area. If we were to be a church out in Vernonia, um, it might be misplaced for that church body, who is more rural, uh, houses that are farther apart, uh, to have a res- to, to start a rescue mission in Vernonia. I speak of ignorance I've actually only biked through Vernonia, but um, it's the, the flock has burdens that are evidenced by the people within the flock and the church and its leaders should understand where are you serving? Who does God want you to serve? And we are to be faithful in that. That's the vision that leadership should have. We, we might say, what is our passion? What is our burden that God has laid on the hearts of us as a church? In leadership by men who are still imperfect and sinful, there can be a tendency for leaders to become arrogant and non-shepherding. Jesus speaks to this in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus talks about, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, those who are rulers, they lord it over the Gentiles, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, Christians. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Um, Elders, It's important for elders to grow and cultivate approachability while leading, even while leading. I found an article by um, Ken Sand, who's uh, Peacemakers, uh, is the organization that he heads up. Let me move quickly through this. I'll I'll, I'll put the link up on on the the church blog this week. But some some points for elders to grow and cultivate uh, approachability. Number one, elders should maintain a gentle authority slope to not be autocratic, to not build up a pedestal, to not overemphasize my authority and to uh, um, overemphasize the responsibility of the church to submit to my authority. Servant leadership is the Christ-like key, as said in Mark chapter 10. An elder should also fight pride and cultivate true humility. An elder should cultivate a shepherd's heart. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11, speaking of God, it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Our church should also guard against institutional dynamics that can undermine approachability. By that I mean, Sometimes churches that are devoted to theology and uh, theological study can have relationally challenged leaders, um, men that prefer study over personal relationships. This is something to watch out for. The love of of the study of God and his word is not wrong, but if you have a certain personality that will lead you to, to prefer to be by yourself to study. John Piper describes himself this way, that he would is love to stay in his library and and just study and not deal with people. And he understands that's a a deficiency on his part as an elder. So you need to watch out for that. Also, if, if, uh, if you have a church that minimizes the congregation and their influence, it can result in an elder group that has no meaningful accountability outside of a very closely knit leadership circle in the local church. If you have a church that can be described as an inner circle and those that are not in an inner circle, that is not a biblical church. Elders should see God's people as he does. See evidences of grace in others. This is demonstrated through many of Paul's writings where he opens letters thanking uh, God for the faithfulness of those that he's writing to. Even if he's going to confront them about sin later in that letter, he speaks to the evidences of grace in others. It's important for elders to be transparent, to be quick to confess their own sins, and to be slow to confront sin in others. An insecure elder may even shift the focus of a, a confrontation of his sin in his life. He may shift the focus by saying, what is going on in your heart that would cause you to find fault with me? An elder will do that. A believer will do that. Eve and Adam did that. They, they they deflected. But it's very dangerous for an elder not to be aware of his own sin. So elders are to lead with a heart of love for God and the sheep. Let God worry about the authority of the eldership. Elders don't need to manufacture it. Moving on quickly. Uh, elders must also serve. Elders shepherd. Elders serve. Mark, how am I doing on time? Okay. <laughs> Elders must also serve. First of all, elders should serve cheerfully and with joy. In 1 Peter 5, it says elders should not serve under compulsion. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says elders should do this with joy. So an elder should not be an elder because of pressure from parents or from spouse or from fellow members. An elder should not be an elder with the attitude, like if I don't do this, no one else will. That is serving under compulsion. And even though that may be true, it's wrong. God will take care of his flock. The elder cannot be an elder for the wrong reason. An elder should serve, first of all, cheerfully and with joy. So under this point, an elder should serve uh, cheerfully. An elder should serve with plurality. An elder should serve equally. And then an elder should serve sacrificially. We're moving right along. So elders serve cheerfully and elders serve together in a plurality. Now, we believe that the scriptural norm is that there be a plurality, multiple elders, and not one man at the top, not a senior pastor and deacons, but a plurality of men who meet the qualifications of an elder and desire the work of an elder. Um, The scriptural basis for this, I'm going to go quickly through this, but let me say by going quickly through this, I'm not saying it's not important. This has been taught on before, but if you have any questions about this, if this is new to you, if you just want to look at these uh, texts um, with someone, please see me or Josh. I may have the the community groups this week look at these texts a little more closely, but let me just hit some verses and dealing with them objectively, um, see how they describe a plurality of eldership. First of all, jot down Acts 15, Acts 15. Here the elders and apostles deliberated as a collective body over doctrinal controversy in James 5:14 James 5:14 it tells the sick to call for the elders plural of the church singular so there's a, a situation where you had one church with multiple elders the sick should call for the elders of the church in James 5:14 in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 Paul appointed elders for them in every church Acts 14:23 In Acts chapter 20, the passage we read, Paul told uh, the elders from Ephesus to come see him at Miletus. It was going to be his last time to speak to them. 1 Timothy 5.17, the passage where we talked about double honor and pay for labor, it speaks of there being multiple elders where a subset of them that rule well in teaching and preaching are worthy of double honor. In Titus 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Crete. Now, there are some interpretations that talk about, well, there are multiple churches in each city and each, each house church had an elder. And so when we talk about the elders in Ephesus, he's actually pulling in all the, um, all the single elders and all the, the pastors and then having them meet with him as a collective group for that geographical region. It's interesting, however, that we do not try to apply the same passages about deacons and say it talks about deacons, but that's actually one deacon in each church, and when it speaks of deacons, it's, it's just one guy, so you just have one deacon, one elder i don't I don't know the historical basis about why we um, some evangelical churches have difficulty with the plurality of eldership, but we believe here that uh, the New Testament supports The multiple elder paradigm within a church body. And again, if if there are more questions on that, please see us and we can sit down and talk about it some more. So elders are to serve with joy. Elders are to serve together in a plurality. Elders, Elders are also to serve equally within that plurality. A group of equals within the eldership, has benefits. First of all, it can balance weaknesses in one man with strengths of another in the service of the church. Equals can also demonstrate teachability by submitting to one another on different things, by learning from each other. Equals can practice accountability within the eldership. Is it appropriate, is it biblical to have a first among equals? This is a terminology that comes up frequently when a church describes a plurality of of, uh, of elders, elders. But even in churches that have adopted the more biblical approaches, we believe, of elder plurality, they frequently hang on to the concept that the buck stops with one of those guys. Um, one of the elders should be the senior pastor or some other sort of title that signifies a hierarchy among the leadership. After all, if the elders can't come to an agreement, someone's got to make a decision. Is there biblical precedent for this? It sounds more like corporate America where you have to have some some guy at the top, not not a group of people. Yes, it is true that Peter was listed in, in the listings of the disciples. Peter is listed first. We can see from the historical record within the Gospels that Peter was the spokesman for that group. But we also do not see any title or any sort of formal recognition of his superiority over the others. In churches that are similar to ours, there are some, as I said, who hold to a first among equals model. Typically, a senior pastor who has the responsibility of the majority of the teaching responsibility. And although he has one vote among the elders, his vote has more weight, he has more influence, and he gives direction for the congregation. Sometimes he has the title of senior pastor, elder for teaching, elder for vision, and sometimes just pastor, while the others are elders. Although many first among equals proponents refer to Peter or Paul as obvious leaders among elders, we cannot discount that there is a historical uniqueness for Peter and Paul as apostles. They were establishing churches, and they had their representatives, Timothy and Titus, establish elder groups to lead those churches This was a seminal model. It's the model that started it, not a propagating model. It it, it was a a one-time model, not a pattern. We can't use Peter and Paul as the basis for an ongoing first among equals. Instead, I believe churches should be seeking 1 Timothy 3 qualified men to lead, not one man. If we set aside first among equals, giftings among the elders can be utilized more fully. Different personalities and gifts that God gives each elder uniquely can help to soften or sharpen, to shape, to help sanctify other elders rather than having all of them conform to the image of one elder. Furthermore, embracing a plural equality of eldership also helps the preaching and teaching ministry. We should not monopolize the pulpit to the extent that good preaching becomes equated with one man's style. If one man uses PowerPoint each time he preaches and he preaches ninety eight percent of the, the the year, that church will, will come to recognize that as good preaching. And that's not exactly correct. The focus should be on the word of God, not the style in which it is presented. The message is more important than the, the delivery by any one man. So different kinds of preaching, as evidenced by a plurality of eldership, will minister to a wider group of people within the body. Because we all know that people learn and receive truth in different ways. Um, And and we believe that having this plurality of people in the teaching ministry can have great benefit to the body. Uh, By sharing preaching responsibilities, it does not elevate any one man to a higher status in the eyes of the faith community because he is not, he's the only one seen in the pulpit on a regular basis. There's also the benefit of corporate exegesis. That means that a group of men studying Scripture can frequently come up with a more accurate, faithful interpretation of the Bible than just one man studying on his own. And we've seen that benefit here as the preaching team does continue to meet each week to go over the text. Um, there can be also more time to prepare if the pulpit is being shared. This depends on some self-discipline on the part of the person preaching. But if you know you're going to preach in three weeks, as opposed to just one week from now, you have more time to study and uh, more time to prepare. And probably most importantly, elders need to be fed as well. If you're always the one preaching, uh, how are you being fed? So sitting under the ministry of others, although some some pastors have difficulty hearing other people preach, um, I I believe it is healthy for elders to be fed by other elders as well. Yes, there may be leadership evidenced by special gifting for an elder in a a specific area. And that elder may provide leadership within the elders for that area for a season. But what we are saying is that first among equals should not be be by virtue of a title or even by pay status using the titles of pastor elders clergy or lay elders feeds an inappropriately unbiblical model we want to continue to support the belief that biblically elders are to be plural and equal by not distinguishing elders with different titles if god leads us to have a staff elder here he will be an elder We may say that we have some elders that are paid by the church and some elders that are not paid by the church, but we don't believe that first among equals is to be artificially set up. Elders are finally to serve sacrificially. Elders are to serve sacrificially. The role of an elder calls for a man to sacrifice his time and talents in the service of the church. This may mean that an elder has less time to pursue outside hobbies. This may mean that there is less time spent with family than there would be for a man who does not have this responsibility. An elder could not shepherd properly by viewing it as a nine to five job five days a week. And where the Western, and the Western work week is different than other work weeks in other parts of the world, so we shouldn't say that our work week here is the biblical one anyway. There are seasons of sacrifice for elders. Now, I be careful. I am not counseling for the wholesale improper sacrifice of family or outside interest. I think it would be wrong to say, I will take care of the church and God will take care of my family. The qualifications of an elder would make that an incorrect approach anyway. Uh, It would be wrong for an elder to say, I don't have time to eat healthy or exercise. I have to take, uh, you know, so God's going to take care of my health. I'm just going to eat fast food on my way to my next meeting. There will be consequences. Second Timothy two talks about Paul talks about his suffering in the ministry and how he bears all things for the sake of the elect. In first Peter chapter five, he talks about a reward coming for elders I would say that to be an elder calls for some personal sacrifice. And so an elder is also to serve sacrificially. In in conclusion, my last section on how how elders are appointed. I'm going to move through quickly, but this is something that we'll talk about in the member meeting at the end of the month in more detail. So for now, I'm just going to put forth some some things for, for you to consider, some things to pray about. But if we look in Titus chapter 1, where Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Crete, he's telling him this with an urgency, despite the other issues that may have existed in the church. He said, the first thing I want you to do is to appoint elders. There's a lot else going on in that church at Crete. There's also a principle in Scripture of the congregation having the final word. In Matthew chapter 18, the passage about church discipline and confronting a a, a believer who is in sin, the final step of that is to bring them before the congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in Acts chapter 6, there's biblical precedent for for viewing the congregation as owning the final responsibility for recognizing its leaders. But the question to consider in this section is, are elder search committees biblical? Now, I drew much of this information from the Nine Marks organization. I think it's NineMarks.org. They have an journal that they send out every two months. And for January and February of, of this year, um, it covered uh, the transition of a, of a pastorate or elders. And some things to consider, some downsides of forming a traditional pulpit search committee. Um, first of all, to form a committee, there can, there can be spe- uh, an emphasis on special interest. Like I've been part of pulpit search committees where we formed them by saying, you know, we need to make sure we have someone who represents the interests of parents, someone who represents the interests of the senior citizens, someone who represents uh, those who are single, um, those who are in the professional world, those who uh, don't work outside the home. We need to make sure that everyone's represented. This is not the most important part of calling an elder. The most important part of calling an elder is that one, be faithful to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Also, when you form a committee based on that special interest representation and making sure that every part of the church is represented, you can have unqualified or misguided committee members. Sometimes it can just be a very successful business owner who you know treats it as hiring an elder and, and looks at it that way in a more earthly, secular perspective. There can be a defocus or a... Distraction away from the core biblical qualifications of an elder. A search committee can also introduce a beauty pageant mentality where different men are brought in and evaluated. Um, and then the, the, it can be very divisive to the church to have, uh, you know, I support candidate A or I support candidate C. A beauty pageant mentality is not found in, in Scripture. We believe that it is important and biblical that elders lead the elder search. Consider consider these points. Elders are best qualified for evaluating a man's gifts in preaching and in teaching. To be an elder requires that a man be able to teach. As those who are qualified in serving as elders, the qualification of being able to teach and the dedicated practice of preaching and teaching gives some insight in, uh, in evaluating and assessing additional elders. Elders also, by the same token, are best qualified to evaluate a man's character because their qualifications of, of being an elder themselves uh, required them to to look carefully at these uh, characteristics in their life. Elders are charged, perhaps most importantly, at raising up other elders. Second Timothy chapter two and verse two, elders are told to raise up other elders. It's important that elders recognize people who are already shepherding others. Sometimes a a church can have the approach that we'll take a young man who's kind of a a blank slate and we will train him to become a pastor, whether or not he desires the work of an elder, whether or not he's qualified uh, by, by scripture to be an elder, that we would train up elders. That's not the that's not the most faithful interpretation instead I would say that elders should recognize those that are already shepherding others, that are already teaching others, that have a good grasp of sound doctrine and love other people. Elders should be working to build redundancy in their ministries. Instead of having a senior pastor who leaves and the church collapses, elders should be training up other men, not only to replace themselves as a practical matter, but training up other elders and identifying them as part of their biblical mandate as elders. The church should be bigger than any one man, or even any group of men. The church is God's flock, and the elders are just under-shepherds. In conclusion, elders must shepherd by knowing, by feeding, by protecting and leading. Elders should serve joyfully, plurally, equally, and sacrificially. Elders appoint elders, and we believe the congregation serves as a final affirmation of that elder-led call. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving the church elders who have a desire to minister to your flock. I pray personally for Josh and I as the current elders of this flock that you would um, speak to us mightily through these two messages. That the sobering uh, responsibilities that we have, the accountability that we have, um, would be accompanied with the joy of ministering to the flock that you have entrusted to us. We pray that you would make us as elders more fit tools in your hand. We pray that you would be merciful to us in raising up other elders for our flock here. We pray that the entire church body would um, would grow under the leadership of the under shepherds here. That we would be faithful to feed the flock um, accurately and with love that we would uh, look to the needs of the flock to protect, to comfort, that we would know them. Uh, We just pray that this relationship between the elders and the deacons and the members of the church would be one that honors you. We just pray that as we continue this study uh, in the coming weeks, that you will speak to all of us and uh, uh, give us teachable spirits, that we would see what you have for us in this body, in this time, in this community. We want to be tools in your hand. We don't want to just bide our time until it's time to go to glory, until uh, you return to take us. But that we would um, find our greatest satisfaction by being tools in your hand, by by knowing you more, by discipling each other, by loving each other. Just thank you for this church. Thank you for the um, the the leadership that you have placed in. We just pray that you would guide us in the coming days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.